got a Bible with you, open it up to Genesis 22. If you don't, you can use the Bible in the pew in front of you, and we're going to be in page 16 there. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home as a gift. We'd love you to have a Bible of your own. Uh, as always, we're going to work our way through this passage, and um, if you have any questions, you can uh, jump on slido.com and input the code REVCDA and put your questions in there, and we'll take a look at them at the end this morning. We're going we're gonna to pray one more time before we get started. Lord God, you are, you are good to us. You are kind to us. Your name is great and holy to be praised. God, we've done that through song this morning. Yet you, you come near to us. You, you, didn't, you don't stay um, lofty and above us in the heavens. You come down to us. You come down to us through your word and ultimately through your son because you care about people. We just thank you for your kindness morning. And God, when, when we look at our lives and we don't like what we see, God, I just pray that you would remind us of how near you are, of how good you are, uh, when we're in pain, when we suffer. God, I think as Greg said earlier, just the, the, the suffering that many in our body have experienced in recent weeks. God, it can be easy to, to question and doubt and wonder. And I just, I pray that you would uh, bring peace in those moments for all of us. Teach us, grow us as we dig into your word this morning. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this story, if you are uh, ever on uh, atheist Instagram or TikTok, this is a favorite of why Christianity is awful, why the God of the Christian faith is terrible. And I don't know, maybe today, I don't know everybody here, maybe you're not a Christian this morning, and, and, and you would say, well, yeah, this, this is an awful story. Like, I can't believe you people think that God is good. Um, and I, I get that. Like, it, it feels weird to me. It's, we've, we've been working through Genesis, and I keep saying this, that Genesis is strange, but this is, this is not just strange. It feels violent and inappropriate and wrong. Uh, but as, I hope as we walk through what this story is teaching us and how we're meant to understand it, that we would all come to understand the goodness and the love of God more clearly here. So I want to tell a short story. When I think I was eight years old, when I first went to Disneyland, the ride Splash Mountain had just come out. It was the big new thing. Um, you're probably aware, but it's a it's a kind of a log flume ride that ends with a giant drop. And I remember standing in line at Splash Mountain for like an hour, and it was a long line. And I stood in line with my parents. And you're, you're standing in the line, there's le- these little speakers playing like, you know, folk jamboree music, trying to get you all into the Songs of the South kind of vibe that they do. But in the background, every so, like every 45 seconds or so, you just hear screams. And I just remember like, oh, that's where we're going. 
We're going to that place where all the screaming happens. But I was there, and I was with my parents. I was, especially, I was with my dad. And I trusted my dad. And, and he, he led me into this line. And we went down Splash Mountain. And it was kind of fun, actually. And that, I think that marks a really important distinction for us between the difference of, of fear and, and what we might call like exhilaration. Because if any of you are like roller coaster people, um, one of the things you enjoy is, is fear. Like you, you like being scared, right? You like going upside down and the drops and the adrenaline. But I think if, if you are honest with yourself, if, if you thought for a second that that car could fly off the tracks and burst into flames, you'd probably feel a little different. Because on the roller coaster, you're, you're, you have this exhilaration, but you know that you're safe. You trust the people that designed the ride. You trust the people that you know, are taking your money for the ticket. When I was standing in the line for Splash Mountain, I, I, I didn't think that clearly about the mechanics of the ride, but I trusted my parents that they wouldn't put me through something that was going to ultimately be bad for me. And so in this story, we get this picture of Abraham at the end of his life and how he expresses a very similar trust in God in the midst of uncertainty. That there's, there's a circumstance in his life that seems gut-wrenchingly terrible and fearful, and yet for some reason he holds on to trusting in God because I believe he knows who God is. He knows what God is like. So we start this passage, and every, as a reminder, everything is going really well for Abraham. He just got his promised son. Uh, he's beginning to receive parts of the land that God promised him. In chapter 1, he, he gave God the title everlasting God or enduring God. He's, he sees God as this, this, this big, um, powerful, covenant-making um, God that promised him these things, and he's coming through on his promises. And things in Abraham's life are really starting to get pretty stable. Right? There's, there's been a lot of bumps along the road. He's grown a lot. But now, things are going well. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Like, I just, I mean, I think we need to, if, you, if, you're a, if you're somebody who's grown up in the church, maybe you like had a flannel graph of this story and, and it's just kind of like, yeah, the story of, of Abraham not sacrificing Isaac. But like, I want to sit in that for a second. Just the, the raw emotional, just terror of that. Hey, you know that son that you've been waiting for your entire life? That promised son that you had with your wife who couldn't actually have kids, but I did a miracle to make that happen. The greatest part, not just a, not just a child, like we understand children as a gift and a blessing, but 
for Abraham, this child is a key to his legacy. This is everything for Abraham, this boy. I want you to kill him. I just can't even imagine that. I was at dinner with some friends last night, and we were talking about dealing with mice in our house. And I can't kill mice. Like, I'm just, I mean, maybe that makes me less of a man, but I just feel terrible. I just can't imagine what Abraham is going through. But God says, or the the narrator says that God is testing him. And here's the thing, like nobody likes tests. Most of us don't. Some of you maybe like tests. But the thing about tests is they are, they're meant to be an expression of the person's ability to do a thing. And so somebody who's a good tester wants their participants to pass the test right? The, the bar exam, if you're trying to be a lawyer, the bar exam isn't motivated by like, we don't want anybody to pass the test. The bar exam is motivated by, we want good lawyers. So it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. But, but the people who are putting the test together want to see people pass the test. If you need to get a medical test, if like, well, there's a thing and we don't know what it is, but it might be cancer. We need to test. You don't want to be like, no, I'm, I'm good. We don't need a test. No, you want to test so you can pass the test. So the people will say, no, it's not cancer. You're going to be fine. Tests are a good thing. The best path for the participant is that you would go through the test and coming out on the other side, you've passed it. And God tests people all the time. Like I think he tests us all as Christians every day. The entire Christian life is a test. And the reason for that is because God is intent on shaping you and I into the image of Jesus. He wants you to be like Christ. And he's going to mold your character in a way to do that. Jesus says in Luke 16, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So this is, this is really important for anyone who has ideas about doing big things. If you've, got, if, you've, if you've got dreams about maybe ministry or vocation or family or career or uh, whatever, Jesus says, like, are you faithful in the little things that I've given you to do? Are you honest in your interactions with others? Are you practicing chastity if you're single and faithfulness to your spouse if you're married? Are you generous with your money? Are you doing the small things that have been assigned to you well? Because those are the people that God entrusts with more. And and he does this by, by testing us, by giving us opportunities. A mentor of mine, Royce Curtis, says, faithfulness in ministry tasks and challenges, along with proper response to testing, leads to an expanded sphere of influence. Faithfulness will continue to be tested at each new ministry level. Faithfulness in a small responsibility is an indicator of probable faithfulness in a larger responsibility. The author Robert Clifton uses the phrase integrity check to describe testing. And Curtis writes, an integrity check refers to an event in which God actively evaluates and shapes a person's integrity. It initially evaluates the person's consistency between inner convictions and outward action. 
And so what these authors are are keying in on is this idea that as Christians, we're walking through life and Jesus is giving us circumstances that are tests. And most of them are very small. It's, a, it's an interaction with a person. It's an opportunity to walk in honesty or, or dishonesty. It's an opportunity to be generous or stingy. And if we pass, we move on to the next step in our walk with Jesus. It's called maturity, sanctification are words that we use. But if we fail, the good news is we're not condemned by Jesus. We just get to do it again. Hey, good try. You didn't do it. I'll set you up to do it one more time. But testing it, it builds on itself. Certain tests require other tests to have been completed. Me and my daughter Nora last, a couple nights ago, we're, were playing Mega Man on our Nintendo. Some of you know that. Some of you have no idea what that means. It's fine. Uh, but Mega Man is a robot who has a, a, a gun for an arm. And... Uh, we are pacifists, but that's fine. It's just a Nintendo game. And um, the, the way you play the game is there's a series of levels with these other robots that run the levels. And you pick a level, and you get to the end of the level, and you defeat the robot, and then you inherit his weapon. And the key to the game is some of the robots can only be defeated by the weapons of the other robots. And you have to beat them in the right order, or it doesn't work. And that's the way testing works in the Christian life. Like, you are not put in a position of this really gnarly test until you've been built up by the power of the Holy Spirit in other smaller tests. God gives you opportunities to grow and strengthen and mature and add character and virtue and faith. And then he gives you something more challenging. Not because he wants you to fail, but because he knows that you can pass. And when you pass, you will take on more character and be more like Christ. So this is a test for Abraham. It's it's not the first time Abraham has been tested. He's been tested over and over and over again throughout this whole story. But this is, as far as the narrative goes, his final exam. This is the most difficult thing that God has ever asked Abraham to do. My uh, commentaries this week all pointed out that um, it doesn't come out in the English But in the Hebrew, God actually kind of says, please, please take your son. God knows that this is a big deal. God is not asking something small of Abraham. I want you to kill your son for me. Not just the son you love, but the son that is the key to the whole promise. The whole point of Abraham's life, the blessing, the descendants, the legacy, it's all tied up in Isaac. See, the first test Abraham had was in chapter 12, and that test was motivated by a blessing. uh, We we read, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, I've got a hard thing for you to do. I want you to leave your family. That's hard, but guess, good thing, when you do, I'm going to shower you with blessing. Give me your allegiance. Obey my command, and I promise awesome things are going to happen. That's how Abraham meets God for the first time. But in this test, God doesn't attach any blessings to this. It's just a command to do something unthinkably difficult. John Walton asks, has Abraham's faith been motivated by personal gain 
or simply by his love for God? And this is the test. Do you really love me, Abraham? Do you really trust me? Or are you just in this relationship for the things that I give you? Is Abraham willing to trust Yahweh enough to forfeit all of the blessings that he has already received? And this is a really important question for all of us. Do we love God because of who God is? Or do we love the things that God gives us? Jesus lays out a similar test in Mark 10. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. I love that Jesus doesn't push back on this guy's claim that he's kept all the commandments. Like that's where we tend to go, right? Like you haven't kept all the commandments. You're not, nobody's perfect. You can't claim that. Jesus bypasses that completely. And Mark says that he loved him. This man, this, this rich young man has committed his life to following Yahweh and he has been greatly blessed for it. He is a wealthy man. And Jesus says, give up all those blessings and follow me. John Piper has a a pretty famous little um, thought experiment that that he uses where where he talks about heaven. And he says, imagine heaven is a place where you you have the body that you've always dreamed of. You're there with all of your friends. You have all your favorite food, all your favorite pastimes, all your favorite hobbies. The weather's always perfect. Everything's great, except Jesus isn't there. Is it still heaven for you? Could you exist in that world with everything that Jesus has for you except for him? Are we Christians because we love Christ or are we Christians because we think we will get something out of it? And we will get something out of it, more than we can possibly imagine. But but this is the test that's in front of Abraham. Abraham, do you love me? Do you trust me? But the problem with this test and the reason that so many people think this reflects poorly on God is because he's asking for human sacrifice. And that just intuitively, instinctively feels wrong. I've heard some people use this to to help them... um, justify sinful behaviors, right? Like God is calling me to, you know, insert whatever unethical action that you want to think about, you know, and if he, if he doesn't want me to do it, like he'll stop me. He'll jump in at the last minute and he'll stop me. But, but I just really feel like God's calling me to do this, you know, terrible thing. But I don't think that's an appropriate way to understand the story. But in order to explain that, we need to understand God's view of child sacrifice. In Exodus 22, we read this. 
You must not hold back offerings from your harvest or your vats. Give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your flock. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but on the eighth day, you're to give them to me. So this is riffing off the the story in the Exodus. And maybe some of you know this, where um, the Israelites are in Egypt and they're enslaved and the last straw uh, that that breaks the, the Pharaoh's hold on the Israelites and he says, okay, you can leave, is that God goes through Egypt and he kills the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. That's the last plague. And they, they get out of Egypt and God kind of says, okay, the firstborn belongs to me. The, the, the first, the best, and it kind of ties into like all of our understanding of offering things. But the first one belongs to me. And so you read Exodus 22 and it says, give me the firstborn of your sons. And you think, okay, well, maybe God wants the Israelites to kill their sons. But then a few chapters later, we read in Exodus 34, the firstborn male from every womb belongs to me, including all the male livestock, the firstborn of cattle or sheep. You may redeem the firstborn of a donkey with a sheep, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. So donkeys are super valuable. If you want to keep your donkey, you got to pay for it by sacrificing a sheep. You must redeem all the firstborn of your sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. And so we get this picture of the laws of Israel that like the firstborn son belongs to Yahweh, but you're not allowed to kill him. God doesn't want that. God wants you to submit a sacrificial animal in its place. And that there's a lot of reasons for that. That ties into their whole conception of how sin is dealt with and how their relationship with God. But God is very clear that he doesn't want human sacrifice. In fact, later on in Jeremiah, the, the Jewish people have mixed in with the nations around them and they've adopted the false religions that they were supposed to forsake that did do human sacrifice. And Jeremiah speaks against them. He says, they have built the high places of Baal in Ben-Hinnom Valley to sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire to Molech something I had not commanded them. I had never entertained the thought that they do this detestable act causing Judah to sin. God says, this is so gross and disgusting. I haven't even thought about asking you to do it. Then we get to the New Testament in James. He tells us this. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. And here's what I think we should pull together with this. While it seems like God is acting outside of his character in Genesis chapter 22, I think the key is that I don't think it's clear that Abraham knows that he's being asked to do something wrong. See, the gods of Canaan would have expected child sacrifice in various circumstances. Abraham would have known this. He probably experienced it in his city when he grew up in some way. He would have been aware of this as a normal worship practice. And he's not been given any reason, as we've read through his story, to assume that worshiping Yahweh is any different. John Walton again says, however saddened he may have been, he is not dumbfounded by the macabre and peculiar nature of Yahweh's demand. It was culturally logical, despite being emotionally harsh and only baffling in light of the covenant promises. See, in Abraham's mind, he's not being asked to do something immoral. He's being asked to do something very difficult. 
In Genesis 18, we saw him push back against God's um, decision to destroy Sodom. Remember, he like kind of bargained with God. You wouldn't destroy the city if there were 50 righteous people in it, would you? He said, surely the, the Lord of the, the, the world will do what's right. So he has no problem pushing back when he thinks injustice is happening. But he doesn't say anything in response to God's demand here. And I think it's because Abraham has no reason to think that God's demand is unjust. That doesn't mean it isn't terrible. It is. And God's going to prove that by stopping it, right? He's he's not going to let Abraham go through with this because he doesn't actually want Abraham to sacrifice his son. But from Abraham's perspective, he isn't being asked to do something wrong. He's being asked to put his trust in God in spite of what looks like it makes sense. And so For us, God is not going to ask you to do something that you know goes against his will in order to test you. He might ask you to do something difficult. In fact, I guarantee he will ask you to do something difficult if you walk with him for long enough. But this story doesn't teach us that God tempts us with evil. So then what happens? Abraham got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. Okay, this part of the story is so good. The narrative here is just... So well done. And I mean, that scripture is such a beautiful piece of literature, but the, the details that were given and the things that are left out, I have so many questions. Why doesn't Abraham say anything to God? Does he tell Sarah? Why does he saddle his donkey before he splits the wood? Is he like confused about what would be the most efficient thing to do there? Why does he tell his servants that they will both be coming back? Why does he tell Isaac, who, notice, is old enough in this story to carry a bunch of wood on his back, that God will provide the lamb? Is he lying to Isaac? Is he saying that God has already provided a lamb in Isaac? Does he really believe God will provide an alternative sacrifice? The thing is, is we just don't know. The the story doesn't tell us. We're meant to read it and just wonder at what's going on internally here because we're just not given those details. The mountain is in the land of Moriah, and the word Moriah is similar to the Hebrew word for provision. And maybe that's what Abraham is thinking about. Like, we're going to this place of provision. The author of Hebrews 
sees it this way. He says in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively figuratively speaking. So the author of Hebrews says that that Abraham was convinced that like whatever happens, God is going to keep his promises and maybe Isaac is going to be raised from the dead. And then I have questions about Isaac. Isaac gets tied up and put on the altar. This is not like, Isaac's not two. Remember, he carried this bundle of wood all the way up this mountain. He's probably a teenager. He, at some point, Isaac realizes what's going on. But he could fight, he could run away, but he doesn't. He trusts his father. He willingly allows himself to be bound. And it says a lot of things, but one thing it says is that Abraham has successfully transmitted his faith to his son. Right? He has raised a young man that believes in Yahweh more than he trusts in his own life. But then we read in verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. So right at the last moment, Yahweh calls out from the sky, don't do it, stop. And this is another weird thing about this story, because now I know, now I know that you trust me. Doesn't God know everything? Isn't that what we believe? That God knows all the things. There's not a thing that God does not know. But the The Hebrew word for know is really interesting because it often has something to do with experience, right? And this isn't always true, but one of the important examples of this is, um, I'm reading for the English Standard Version here, but but in Genesis 4, it says, now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. So that's obviously a euphemism, but it has to do with a deep experiential knowledge of something or someone. It's more experiential than it is intellectual. And I was thinking about it this week, and many of you know that I, um, uh, I work part-time as, as a 
commercial videographer. So I, I meet with clients and they've got a, an idea that they've, they've got a business or a, whatever that they're trying to make a video for. And, and so I go in and I listen to them and then I come back and I usually have a pitch for them. This is my idea. This is how I think it should work. And this is what I think it'll look like. When I pitch a video, if I'm doing my job right, I've got a really good picture of that reality in my mind, right? I, I, hopefully, I know, I know what the, the talent's going to look like. I know what the background's going to look like. I know the colors. I know the framing. I know the music. I've got this idea because I want I, I to communicate it to the client. But that's a very different knowledge than the knowledge of actually watching the finished video. When the video is actually done, when we've, we've filmed and edited and, and, and done all of the, the mixing and the color grading and I've delivered it, that's the video. And it's the same video, it's the same knowledge, at least from my perspective, but it's different. It's deeper. It's more real. And this is going to get a little, little philosophical for a second, so apologize if that's not your thing. But the eternal mind of God existing before time began, right? Nothing has been created. Time doesn't exist. Space doesn't exist. We're getting into areas that we can't even wrap our minds around. He has known every single possible and actual circumstance that did or could or will take place in all of reality. Like that's, that's embedded into who he is as the greatest possible, the greatest possible being. And so in a sense, the entire universe and everything that's ever happened already existed in the mind of God before it was created. So why did he create it? Why do we actually exist? Because an actual universe where people actually exist is better than a theoretical one. And so God, in his goodness and wisdom, decided a real Space-time continuum with real people is better than just his vision of what that could be in his mind. And so then we get back to our story, and God says, now I know that you trust me, Abraham. Because Abraham's actual obedience in the face of losing everything is better in God's mind than God simply knowing that Abraham would respond that way theoretically. And this is what I think we get at in James. A lot of people say James and Paul are like at odds with each other um, because they use the same verses to make opposite points, it seems. But I think there's more nuance to it than that. In James 2, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. We read all the way back in chapter 15 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. But James says that that acknowledgement in the mind of God, that real credit of righteousness was completed in Genesis 22 when Abraham actually stepped out and did the thing. Bill Arnold says like this, the idea was not to torture Abraham, but to demonstrate a truth that can be observed in contrast to a truth that is only asserted. 
And this is a normal relationship dynamic, right? Like if you're married, um, you, you, can, you can like believe that your spouse loves you. But when they show you that they love you, that's a lot more meaningful, isn't it? Many times, abusive relationships work on the fact that there's a lot of talking about love, but there's not any demonstration of love. It's better to actually see and experience reality than it is just to know about it as a possibility. This whole episode is meant to bring to reality a faithful obedience in Abraham that was only a possibility before. And this is, this is the climax of Abraham's story. And God says everything that he's going to say to Abraham ever again about the promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. He adds details. You're going to be like this, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. You're going to possess the gates of your enemies. All the nations are going to be blessed. It's all very similar, and it's all tied up in this final blessing. Abraham, I'm going to make sure I fulfill my promises to you. And then, and then he kind of fades out. This is the last time we see God speak to Abraham. His story comes to a close. And the story transitions with a few lines uh, in verses 20 through 24 about Abraham's family. The, the key in that verse is that the woman Rebecca comes up. She's going to feature pretty strongly in a couple chapters. But as we, as we think about what God is doing in Abraham's life, bringing into reality this possibility of his love and trust for God, I think we, there's questions for us. Do, do we really love God? Are we people that are gods because of who God is? Have we trusted in Christ because we love Jesus? Because we're enamored with the beauty and goodness of Christ? Or are we Christians just because it's socially convenient? Or because we think we will be blessed for it? Are you and I, are we willing to follow Christ even if it means giving up significant things? Even if he asks you to do something really hard? Even if he says, you know, that good thing that I've given you, I want it back. That's a hard word to hear. But it's the kind of thing that God does time to time, I think, in all of our lives to shape our souls to be more like Jesus. And there's obviously, there's something else going on here. If you've been a part of the Christian community for a while, you, you, you're, you can see the story of Jesus in this chapter, right? Um, in Second Chronicles we read that Solomon began to build the Lord's temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the site David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So hundreds of years later, we find out that the temple in Jerusalem is built, the city of Jerusalem is built on this area of land where Abraham and Isaac were, where Abraham said, God's going to provide a sacrifice. The center of Israelite worship where sacrifices are made daily is set up here in this city that Jesus would eventually come to and be killed in. 
Jesus, we read in the Gospels, carries the wood of his cross on his back up the mountain to the place where he would be executed. Pretty famous verse, John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Just like Isaac, Jesus is God's one and only Son. Matthew 17, we read about Jesus going up to another mountain and uh, being changed and, and covered in bright light. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Another, the voice of Yahweh coming out from the sky. Romans 8, Paul says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? See, Paul turns the Abraham story on its head. Instead of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac to prove his faithfulness to God, God sacrifices his son Jesus to prove his faithfulness to us. So, as we wrap up, this, this brings us back to Splash Mountain. And the fact that I could stand in line in a place of uncertainty and fear, because, not because I was strong, but because I knew my dad was with me. And if we're people that know the extent to which God has himself gone to secure our salvation, if we begin to understand just how much he loves us, just how much he's done on our behalf, then we can start to trust him with whatever else he leads us into. We can assume it's probably going to stretch us to be more than we already are. And nobody likes that at the time. But the goal is that we would become like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm not yet like Jesus. And rather than looking at this story and, and seeing God as some kind of moral monster, I think we should walk away remembering that if you're a Christian here this morning, God is for you. God wants you to understand his deep love for you and the fulfillment that he has for you when you trust him and love him. See, we are, we are God's creatures. We are his creation, and he deserves our love. But also, as his creatures, we have been designed to find our ultimate joy in giving him that love. Uh, St. Augustine famously said, our heart is restless until it rests in you. And this is what God is drawing out of Abraham in this story. He's, he's taking this theoretical idea that like, yeah, I guess I love you more than anything. And he's making it concrete. He's making it real. Not because he hates Abraham, 
Not because he even wants child sacrifice, he doesn't, but because he wants Abraham to experience the reality of that kind of trust in God. And I guarantee that if we are committed to walking with Christ, he will do similar things to us and in us. All right, let's do some questions. Are all of the challenges we face in life caused or given by God as tests, or are some things just things we face due to brokenness and sin in the world? Um, so there's going to be a lot of difference of opinion in, in this room and in the church about like how what, what the sovereignty of God looks like. Um, uh, the, the, some in the church would say that God's sovereignty extends over everything that happens exhaustively. Um, other parts of the church would say that God is a sovereign in the same sense that a king is a sovereign and that he can do whatever he wants, but he's not directly responsible for things necessarily. Um, I tend to lean that direction and say that there are terrible things that happen in this world that are caused by the sin and brokenness in this world. But the caveat is for the Christian We've been given the promise that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So whether, I think it's helpful to say that like when terrible things happen, it's not like, oh, well, yeah, God just wanted that to happen. I don't think that's always true. I don't think God wants terrible things to happen all the time. But I also think that he lets things happen for our own benefit. And if something difficult has happened to you, at the very least, if God is who we believe him to be, he could have stopped it. And he chose not to. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with, especially if you're in the midst of pain. But I think when I'm struggling, I want to be able to put myself in a frame of mind that says, okay, whether, whether you like made this happen or let this happen, either way, it's happening. What am I supposed to learn from it? How am I supposed to grow in it? Is it wrong for people to test people, someone's love for you or faithfulness? No, that's an interesting question. I mean, what I'm, what I'm assuming is that, like, if, if it's wrong for people to do that, why does God do that? And if it's, yeah. I would, I would generally say yes. I can't think of a good example off the top of my head where it would be appropriate to put someone to the test like that. Um, but I think to kind of put it back in, in, in the context of God, like, we're, we're just different sort of beings than God is, right? We don't have the power, the authority. We're not running the universe. Um, we don't know what's good for us. We surely don't know what's good for other people most of the time. And so I think God is maybe exempt from that sort of um, critique. At least that's what I'm thinking off the top of my head. Does Abraham know this is a test? We can't manipulate God. Does he not test us more for our awareness rather than in order to discern what is in our hearts? 
I don't know that Abraham knows this is a test. In the, in the middle part, when he talks to Isaac and says, like, God's going to provide a ram, maybe. I mean, he's called a prophet in chapter 20, so maybe he's seeing into the future and he's saying, like, oh, there's definitely going to be a ram there and it's all going to work out fine. Maybe he's just, you know, maybe he's lying to his son because he can't bear to tell him the truth. He eventually tells him the truth because he, you know, he binds him and almost kills him. But the narrative just doesn't say. It just doesn't tell us whether or not Abraham knows what's going on. And I do think, I, I do think you're right that, that the test is for Abraham's awareness. God knows what's in Abraham's heart, and he wants to bring it out into the open. If Abraham's faith was already counted to him as righteousness, Romans 4, and God foreknew what Abraham would do, then why have put him through this test, faith versus work? And this is, the, this is one of the passages where people say that Paul and James are at odds with each other, right? Like Abraham's faith is counted to him or as, as, as righteousness, and that we don't, we're not saved by works. And then James says, well, yes, we are saved by works, and there's a big fight. But I think, as I said before, the the fact that what God is doing is he's taking that faith that is real, that exists inside Abraham's heart, and he's bringing it out into the open, primarily for Abraham's benefit, is what's going on there. Based on cultural norms that they were surrounded by and came out of, would Isaac have submitted himself, himself submit to being a sacrifice without struggling against it? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, 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 we, to ask the question, what, what does a, what, what would a teenage boy, uh, based on the cultural norms of the world around him, do? I'm not sure. And we, the the text doesn't say. How awkward would the walk home have been? Yes. Another thing that it doesn't say, right? Like, yeah. So good. Last question. Would it be fair to see these tests that God allows as freeing us from our weaker attachments and realizing his sufficiency? I think absolutely. I think that's, that is a key to what God is doing often. I mean, we saw it in the, in the rich young ruler story. Like you've, you've been blessed by God. You've got all these things, but your sufficiency is in your money and I want you to give it up for me. And he couldn't do it because he was stuck in, I need this. And Anytime we're at a place where we need this and it's not Jesus, that's a dangerous place for us. And God is going to do work in our lives to disconnect us from those things. And we'll talk about it more, but that's a really good plug for fasting (laughs) because fasting is a spiritual discipline that helps us disconnect from lesser loves uh, that blind us to God's sufficiency. All right. We're going to take communion. Jesus instituted the communion meal just hours before that he carried a piece of wood up a mountain in the land of Moriah to be sacrificed. He was led up willingly by his father, and instead of having a ram take his place, he, takes, he stays there for our place. And this is the entry point into our life with God. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is what it means to be a Christian. It's not about a certain ethical uh, framework, although that matters. It's not about doing good deeds, although that matters. It's about trusting in the work of Christ on our behalf. Jesus is a substitute for our sin 
paying the penalty of death that we deserve on the cross. And that life is given to us by his grace through faith, through trusting in him. And the the bread and the cup in front of you are our weekly reenactments of this reality. So if you're a Christian this morning, I would just invite you as the band comes back up to come to the table to take the bread and the cup. We have wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. And just, just think about the willingness of Jesus to be killed in obedience to his father for us. His willingness to be that sacrifice, to pay the penalty for our sin. To recognize the depth of his love for you in that act. And wherever you're struggling, and I know there's a lot of stories in this room, and if we had time to hear them all, it would take us hours and it would be really painful. Whatever you're struggling through, whatever God is leading you through, Recognize this morning that if Jesus did what he did for you, all these lesser things that God is asking you to walk through, you're going to make it because he cares about you and he wants you to be conformed into the image of Christ. And these things that you're experiencing that are hard, that are difficult, that are painful, maybe even that are devastating, are being used as tools by God, whether they were, whether God's did it or whether God's just deciding to use it, either way, he's going to make sure it works out for your good in the end. Come up and take the bread and the cup. And um, as we worship, you're free to sit or stand. Um, You can come up and use the prayer rugs if you'd like to kneel and change the posture of your body while you worship. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.